Hi, everybody. Sorry we're just a little bit late, uh, but we will begin uh, now. Uh, firstly, introduce myself. My name is Professor Mick Cox from, uh, from Ideas, and I've been associated with summer school for several years. And to my left, my good friend, colleague here from the economics department, but also associated with Ideas, uh, Professor Danny Kwa. Uh, this is the fourth of four lectures, obviously, which we have laid on for summer school. Last week we had Professor Andrew Gamble talking about crisis without end, the unraveling of Western prosperity. The, on the 14th of July, we had Robert Faulkner talking about the earth in crisis, and our very first lecture by Conor Geerty from the Department of Law here talked about human rights, security, and the rule of law after Snowden. Uh, we try in these lectures to make them broad, wide, and to engage with big questions. Now, Danny and I have been engaging with this question, uh, I, I, I think, for as long as I've been at the LSE, but certainly uh, over the last four or five years, uh, basically de debating the larger question as what's happening to the world, where is the world moving, is it moving eastwards, is it moving brickwards, uh, is it moving away from the west, is America in decline? Is the world changing in such a fundamental way uh, that the 21st century is going to look a hell of a lot different to the way the 20th century looked, which we were told was an American century, or to the way the 19th century looked, which many people defined as a European century? So that is the broad, uh, the broad uh, framing of the discussion. Because I'm a gentleman and an Englishman, I'm going to allow Danny to go first. <laughs> Danny, however, not being a gentleman, is going to use PowerPoints, which I think is really bad form. So, uh, no further ado, I wonder if you could give a big hand to Danny Kwa, who's going to open the debate this evening. Thank you, Mick, and, and welcome everyone to this evening's event here at LSE. Mick and I are going to debate this question, supremacy or survival, the Western and Asian century. Um, in my presentation, to kick off the discussion, there are three things I'd like to do. First, I'd like to clarify what this question is about. Now, at first, it might seem peculiar to do this, because isn't it evident what the, what the issues here are? Because, after all, the way this debate begins is supremacy or survival. Those are rather extreme positions, extreme frameworks to couch this discussion because it suggests to many that the issue is already resolved which way we're going to go and it's simply a question of outlining the contours of that. I want to suggest that the question is not that transparent yet on that particular crunch point and indeed here in 2014 we are at a tipping point in terms of the issues that are at stake here. Now, I want to talk about evidence, and I want to present to you the evidence either way on this. So having laid out what the contours of the issues are, I'm going to tell you my own position based on evidence, and then I'm going to conclude by saying what I think is at stake for the world here. Exactly 20 years ago this year, the world's most influential economist, Paul Krugman, drew a line in the sand. He drew a line between East and West, 
between the transatlantic economies and the Asian ones. And he, in 1994, predicted that only a decade and a half after his writing, all talk of Asian supremacy would be gone. At the time, in the mid-1990s, there was a view that the Asian economies were on the rise. They would be the ones that would be dominant in the global economy. Many people thought that, and many people in the West were examining their suppositions, their prejudices, their long-held notions of what the world would look like. Krugman argued forcefully and convincingly that that was all wrong. He said that from the perspective of 2010, we would look back on this period of potential Asian supremacy and we would feel just as silly as the Brezhnev era observers would have looked back on what the Soviets were predicting in the 1960s. Now, many of us might not remember those, the discussion in those days, not least the, what the Brezhnev era was about. In the 1960s, the best estimates that the world had of what was happening in the Soviet Union and these were numbers not just coming from within the Soviet Union, but from the United States and elsewhere, the best estimates that we had suggested that the Soviet Union was growing at double the rate of the United States. And although it is only legend that these words were actually uttered, many people thought in the 1960s that there was a very real fear that the machinery of the Soviet Union would indeed bury the West. Now, by the time Krugman wrote these words, all of that had been revealed to be incorrect. It wasn't that those numbers were wrong. It was that Brezhnev led the Soviet Union through an era of stagnation that subsequently the Soviets never recovered from. Economic growth in the Soviet Union eventually slowed into sharp stagnation over the long term, and then eventually, as we know, non-existence. The Soviet Union no longer exists. And Krugman, writing from the mid-1990s, suggested that that was a good parallel that we could extrapolate from, that the optimism about Asia similarly turning in growth rates double that of the United States, so too would we be led astray. Now, there are many interesting things in this article by Paul Krugman. What I found particularly captivating was its persistent insistence and emphasis on the importance of using hard facts and economic statistics rather than nuance, innuendo, and fear. In the words of my critic, of my colleague, also my critic, in the words of my colleague, Alwyn Young, 
who is a professor of economics here at LSE, whose important work Krugman drew on for this article, what we need to pay mind to is the tyranny of numbers. We should not be paying attention to whim and rumor and innuendo about the rise of Asia and the decline of the West. It is hard facts that we need to pay mind to, and it is hard fact that Krugman carried forwards in this discussion. So Krugman's article in 1994, unlike many written today, did not talk about soft power. It did not talk about U.S. unipolarity. It did not talk about the paradox of the Americans gaining ever more power by creating an inclusive, open, democratic, global system that invited yet other nations to come on board and be part of the ruling leadership of the world. It was just about facts. This article banged on about numbers and about the importance of listening to those who worked with only hard evidence. So for the next five minutes, I'm going to be numbers guy. I'm going to try and argue that this perspective is wrong, and I'm going to do it on the basis of using empirical evidence. Now, 1994, when this article was written, we will remember, was three years ahead of the 1997 Asian financial crisis. It was an epidemic of cross-country financial contagion and economic downturn. Hundreds of millions of people were thrown into unemployment. Asian stock markets and currencies fell by between 50 to 75 percent. It looked like the end of the period of Asian economic growth. And many observers thought that Krugman was particularly foresighted in having predicted this particular episode. Of course, Krugman himself disagrees. What's happened today? Well, the Soviet era did unfold the way that Krugman's analysis and Elwin Young's analysis suggested it would. But when we look out into the world today, after 2010, the world looks a little bit different. How does Asia look compared to the era of stagnation following Brezhnev's presidency? On the one hand, some observers might begin by saying, well, where is Asian supremacy since 2010? I hope that towards the end of this evening, you will agree with me that Asian supremacy in the sense, in the modest sense, that Krugman argued against is not so far off the cards. But I want to begin with something more modest. I want to follow Krugman's lead, and I want to look for something that's a little bit more realistic. I just want to know if Krugman was right, whether by 2010, Asia had collapsed into a Brezhnev-style era of stagflation. And that's an easy counter-argument to make because 
Asia did not. This is a graphic from earlier this year where the Financial Times drawing on some new data that the International Comparison Project had put together drew the extrapolation that China continued to be on track in its rapid economic growth and that indeed when others like Jim O'Neill who coined the BRICS term and other optimists on East Asia had predicted that China would become the world's largest economy by 2019. Actually, the latest data, constructed not from within China, but from outside, suggested that China would actually overtake the United States as early as this year. The Financial Times reported the extrapolation on this. I said I would be numbers guy, so I don't want to continue by simply, together with Mick here, perhaps posing this debate as a problem in dueling headlines. My students in DV409 International Development calculated countless figures like this one, and all of this concluded that China was on track to overtake the United States as the world's largest economy. Perhaps more telling in this extrapolation from how Asia did not collapse into a Brezhnev-style era of stagflation is the following sequence of evidence. In the midst of the 2008 global financial crisis, the largest international financial crisis that the world has seen in the last 70 years, the United States, the transatlantic economies, hypothesize that with the weakening economies in the West, the East would collapse even faster. Because after all, wasn't it the case that the East was growing only because the West imported from them? Well, what happened in the course of the global financial crisis is this. When you go to the IMF statistics and you count out who contributed the greatest to world economic recovery from 2007, 2008 until 2012, one large economy emerges as being the single greatest contributor to world economic growth. These are numbers that use the IMF's market exchange rate calculation. So this is not purchasing power parity. This is not, these are not numbers that are computed from within Asian countries that might be attempting to big up how much they were contributing to the global economy. Well, in the five years from 2007, China alone contributed to the global economy four and a half trillion US dollars at market exchange rates. That is three times what the United States did. Even Japan, flat on its back, an economy that had, was, under, had, was in the process of undergoing two lost decades, contributed to global economic growth as much as the United States. And when you rank up, when you list out all those countries that contributed to global economic recovery, it turned out to be the East or Asia rather than the West that was pushing the global economy forwards. In, con in contradiction to the hypothesis that the East grew, only because the West bought. In the course of the global financial crisis, the West was not buying,
but the East continued to grow. Indeed, when you unpack the evidence, the East, through the course of the global financial crisis, was helping the West grow by continuing to import from the West. The experience of Germany is instructive in this turning around of how the global economy looked. For most of the last three decades, outside of other countries in the European Union, Germany's largest export market was the United States. The blue line that shows up in this graph shows the importance of, to Germany of its Germany being able to export to the United States. But from about 2008 on, well actually from a bit earlier, from about 2005 on, Germany's trade pattern started to change, started to drift imperceptibly. Instead of exporting most of its products west to the United States, Germany was starting to export east, not just to China, but to developing Asia. The green line that you, that you see in this graph here is the size of the German export market that's developing Asia. And we see that the German economy continued to grow through the 2008 global financial crisis, even though it was an export-oriented, manufacturing-intensive, consumption-abstemious economy, getting no help from the rest of the European Union, Germany continued to grow because it was exporting east. The rise of Asian supremacy, not to use that word really, but this is the language that we're now forced to use, manifests in how now actually it is growth in the East that is powering not just the global economy overall, but growth in the West. <clears throat> let me come round now to what, to, let me come round back to Paul Krugman's article with which I began. There was an article published in this journal, Foreign Affairs. In that article, Krugman added a further point. He said there will probably be a substantial shift of the world's economic center of gravity, but it will be far less drastic than many people might imagine. The pieces of evidence that you and I have just seen suggest that actually that might not be correct. The shift in the world's economic center of gravity might actually be more drastic than what Krugman imagined. I'm not sure what other people think, but here it's what's happened to the world's economic center of gravity. If you take strip away national boundaries and you look at where economic activity occurs, using satellites zeroing in on locations on our planet where economic activity can be observed and measured, and you track where these how these locations have evolved over the last three decades, okay, the center, the weighted average, the center of gravity of these locations is documented in this map by the circular dot that appears initially in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in 1980, but then steadily tracking eastwards. Okay, this heat map that shows a darkening of the world's economic center of gravity over time tells us the following. In 1980, indeed, the world's economic center of gravity was firmly in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. 
by 2010, Krugman's endpoint for the extrapolation, the world's economic center of gravity had drifted eastwards to the Arabian Peninsula. In that track over the last 30 years, the world's economic center of gravity has shifted east by 5,000 kilometers, three quarters of the Earth's radius from west of London to east of London, east of Helsinki, east of Bucharest, east of Izmir, Turkey. I think that's quite a distance that the world's economic center of gravity has traversed from the rise of Asia, but there is more in stock. If this trend continues across these, all these different locations on our planet, the world's economic center of gravity will continue to move eastwards, not in a naive straight line extrapolation, but because of the fluctuations and variations in economic activity on the surface of our planet, so that by 2050, well, gosh, in our lifetimes, the world's economic center of gravity will converge to a point on the boundary between India and China. It will not continue to shoot off into the Pacific Ocean, but it converges, it gradually slows down, so that those two economic giants those two Asian economic giants, India and China, will between them share the world's economic center. This concludes my little discussion on evidence. I think that the case for Asian ascendancy remains a strong one. For those who have pulled back and said the world that we're living in because of the slowdown in emerging markets, because of the global financial crisis, because of the destruction of the engine of growth that the East had ridden by being able to sell to the West. Well, all of those prejudices, all of those hypotheses seem contradicted by what the empirical evidence, the tyranny of numbers, suggests. But does this mean Asia is supreme? Let me conclude by taking on this last question and asking what all this evidence means for us, how it stands in contrast to an earlier view held by my colleagues, my economics colleagues, how that changes what we should be thinking about the way the world is. When we think about whether Asia is now supreme, whether the West will be able to survive in an Asian century. We need to realize that this shorthand should not be exaggerated. No one should be expecting a formal Olympic-style ceremony <laughs> where trumpets blare <laughs> and there's a formal signing over of world leadership and supremacy with fountain pens and quills and ink and certificates being exchanged. Instead, Asian supremacy or Asian ascendancy or Western supremacy is something much more subtle and implicit, okay? much more tacit. And what we need to be doing is indeed not just looking at the tyranny of numbers, but looking at soft power, looking at the distribution of culture and influence in the world. When we recite hard numbers the way that I've just done, we quickly get to a point where we can go no further. 
we then get into arguments about how these economic numbers don't mean what we think they should from the perspective of this coming century being an Asian century. We get into murky trade-offs. We start debating things like, should the attraction of U.S. universities to students from everywhere else in the world, should the attraction of Hollywood and American pop music, does that weigh more than <coughs> K-pop, <laughs> girls' generation, <laughs> or China's research into stem cell technology and renewable energies. We get into debates where we announce our prejudices and we refuse to budge. We start to say U.S. technology is, of course, superior because, after all, it is what designed the iPhone. And we don't pay mind to how India, the rest of Asia, China, focuses on indigenous innovation in energy-efficient cars. And we start simply announcing prejudices. The conclusion from all this, I go back to Foreign Affairs, that same journal that published this withering criticism of Asian ascendancy. By coincidence, just last month, this journal published a different article. And this time, it was called, Have We Hit Peak America? This time, the essay didn't carry as many hard numbers with the definitiveness and the tyranny from 20 years ago. This time, the article concluded not with the same kind of predictions as I announced to you earlier, but instead with a recommendation for national renaissance where the United States should talk less and do more. So why does it matter? Well, it matters because world leadership matters. As Mick and I, as you in the audience, try and take forwards and formulate a view about whether we should be thinking about Western supremacy or Western survival, really what we need is not any of these kinds of black or white pictures, but instead the realization that the world needs leadership for all of us to work together. We might no longer be in a world that looks like this. But instead, (laughs) we should be thinking about how we carry forwards world leadership in a situation where politics and economics is more nuanced. We should be open to how different political systems can continue to progress and advance human well-being. But we are fearful of that. Even those in Asia who are convinced of Asia's economic strength continue to want to draw on U.S. leadership because the United States brings democracy, human rights, respect for the individual, and a certain guarantee of success. And what I would like to argue is that when we and I think about this contrast between supremacy and survival, we should be thinking, what is it about the Asian systems that has continued to surprise us 
these last 30 years. Political observers everywhere have started to rethink this. Before Krugman's article 20 years ago, there was an even more famous article written by Francis Fukuyama 25 years back with the title, The End of History, where Fukuyama foresaw that the end of the Soviet Union would bring about a way of thinking that suggests that it is only liberal democracy and free market capitalism, whereby we would organize the world. What Asia and Asian ascendancy brings up for us is that we should view it hand in hand with a rejection of other parts of those two principles. Following the global financial crisis, the 2008 global financial crisis, a witch hunt began. This witch hunt attacked my economics colleagues. None of my economist colleagues are now able to pronounce on the superiority of a free market capitalist system, (laughs) even if we believe that. But that's a good thing, probably, because our views have become more nuanced. Well, the same thing with Asian ascendancy and the potential Western decline. Perhaps liberal democracy is also something we need to re-examine as Asian ascendancy continues. After all, it is in Asia that more people live than anywhere else in the world. If you go to a point in the South China Sea, as I've drawn here, and you craft a 4,000-kilometer radius around that point in the South China Sea, that covers only 25 million square kilometers of inhabitable land, less than one-sixth of this planet's land area. Yet this small part of the planet contains more than 50% of the world's population. If we really believed in liberal democracy, one person, one vote, we do not say you're only allowed to vote if you're white. You're only allowed to vote if you're male. You're only allowed to vote if you have a Harvard or LSE degree. (laughs) Every person counts. And if 50% of the world lives in a system that is economically successful, but that challenges our political prejudices, we should pay attention to that. Thank you very much. Well, I made the first mistake of the evening by allowing Danny to go first. If I'd had a pen in my bag, I would have rewritten my lecture too. I'm going to speak on more than just whether power is shifting or economic. Uh, The centre of gravity is moving to Asia. I'm going to talk about power shifts in in a wider sense, and that will take in more more than just about Asia or more than just about China, because I think there's a much larger debate being had, and which has been going on for about 10 years. And that debate, of which I've been engaged, and Danny coming at it from a different perspective, has been engaged, namely whether or not the world that uh, has existed since the 16th century, um, and certainly since the end of the Cold War, whether that world which has been dominated by the West, uh, in, in the broad sense, including the Europeans and the Americans, whether the ideas and the models which have come out of the West whether that world is now in a process of transition. 
going somewhere else. Um, the argument that a shift is underway, however, has been made by many, many writers and not just by Danny. Danny mentioned uh, Foreign Affairs and Krugman's rather strange article of 1994, which I think turned out to be almost entirely wrong. Danny was much fairer about it than I would have ever been, to be perfectly honest. But in 2004, the editor of the Foreign Affairs Journal, which uh, Danny referred to, James Hoke, talked of a shift in the making. And this at a time when the United States still seemed to be riding high in the world, even in spite of George W. Bush. Um, and this looked more than, this, however, much more like an intelligent surmise uh, than a verifiable statement. It was only by 2008, I would say, um, that people began to talk more openly of a dramatic shift in the balance of economic power towards what uh, one public intellectual, Farid Zakaria, termed in his book, The Rest, not Asia, The Rest. At least three things happened to make this sound credible, apart from the fact that Sakari was making the point, which always makes things sound credible. Uh, one, of course, was consistent positive economic growth in a number of emerging economies, including, of course, uh, China's and Asia's more generally. Another was what we might call the Great Wall Street Crash, of 2008, which almost within months had both undermined the American model and had enormous reverberations around the Western economies, which Danny referred to. And finally, there was the devastation visited upon Europe and European self-confidence by the so-called Euro crisis. And as the problems piled up for the West, one writer after another lined up to proclaim a new world order. Books began to proliferate, articles accumulated, all repeating a version of the same idea, namely that the world we had known was fast disappearing. A power shift, in other words, was in the making every bit as significant as that which occurred after World War II, when the United States has emerged as really the superpower, and of equal significance to that which had taken place uh, in 1991, when the USSR disintegrated, leaving the West and the United States in a position of unrivaled supremacy. But this time, however, the shift was not moving towards the West and the United States, but decidedly against them. As the previous speaker in the series, Andrew Gamble, said last week, one of the things that is currently adding to the West many problems, or lack of self-confidence, if you wish, is the fact, as he sees it, of the West having been knocked off its perch. Uh, that great theorist of the rise and fall of everything, uh, Paul Kennedy, uh, close friend as well, so maybe I shouldn't have said that, but I said it, so I can't retract it. Paul said, he agrees, the West is on the way down again. Other regions, including Asia, other countries, including China, are on the way up. The great wheel of history keeps on turning, and it's turning back. Now, it might seem churlish and possibly intellectually suicidal, uh, and I hope, however, not factually inaccurate, <laughs> to cast doubt on the new truth of our times, or at least ask questions about it. No more. Uh, but we are at the LSE, and that is what we at the LSE should be doing, in a nice way, of course, <laughs> possibly in a very English way. That is to say, on the one hand, but on the other. Some initial questions just to get the ball rolling. Uh, the first question is to where precisely is power shifting, if it is indeed shifting away from the West, the United States? Well, Zakaria's notion of the rest might sound okay. Problem is, I don't know where the rest is on a map. 
However, I can find four countries called Brazil, Russia, India and China, uh, the so-called BRICS, an acronym invented by Jim O'Neill back in November 2001. Now, I certainly know where the BRICS are. I don't know where the rest is. And taken together, they've definitely had a good few years, to be sure. They also hold annual meetings now. They've established a bank of sorts. They've added one new member, South Africa, and they pass resolutions on a range of international issues. But if this is part of the argument, then part of the repast, or at least part of the qualification, must be, what are the BRICS? What are the limits? One, it seems to me, relates to coherence, if we're talking about the BRICS for the moment, but two of the great Asian countries are members of the BRICS. How united are they, really? Another concerns politics. That's, that's why one of the BRICS, the biggest, is still ruled by the Communist Party, obviously China. Two of the BRICS are noisily democratic, very noisy, Brazil and India, while another, Russia, if not noisily democratic, it's distinctly post-communist. Uh, finally, the BRICS are a very odd lot. One of them, Russia, has only got wealthier because it has loads of oil and gas in the ground. Another, India, still has 300 million people living in dire poverty. Brazil, meantime, is now more dependent on commodity exports than it was when the brick was invented back in 2001. While yet another China is so much bigger than all the rest that if you were to take China out of the BRICS, then the BRICS would look decidedly less impressive uh, as economic powerhouses. Indeed, and here I bring some economic stats in, and I feel very nervous doing so in front of Danny looking at me like that. But even using the most optimistic of calculations, the PPP, Brazil, India, Russia and South Africa, when bundled together, only add up to around $11 trillion in GDP making them actually much, much smaller economically than the European Union. Nor are they individually so impressive. Brazil, for instance, I've been doing this all over the weekend, Danny, so I know this is true. <laughs> Brazil, for instance, has a GDP only half that of Japan. The Russian economy is at least one-third smaller than that of Germany, while South Africa's economy only comes in at around 25th in the league table. Hardly the stuff of parachutes. Still, China is a member of the BRICS, and when added to the other four, or putting the four together, uh, five together, it makes for a lot of world economy. Surely a sign of a shift of power, to a degree. But as Danny, I think, implied, beware of exaggeration, beware of overstatement. By 2014, the original four were roughly equivalent to $17 trillion in a $77 trillion world economy, using one GDP measure, or $23 trillion of an $88 trillion world economy, using another set of statistics. I could go on. It looks good, impressive, still not decisive. And of course, everything is relative. The BRICS, including China, have clearly made impressive strides forward. Danny alluded to some of those. O'Neill has cause to be pleased, dear old Jim. But the West still retains, it seems to me, a clear lead. Take the US and the EU. Combine the two together, what do you get for 2014? around $34 trillion, double the size of the BRICS using one measure or using another around 50% more than the BRICS combined. Take even that numerical symbol for the declining West, G7. Add up the seven and you get more or less the same outcome, around $35 trillion of world GDP or at least 50% bigger using another statistic. We could go on and on and on, looking at corporate power and others. But let's move on as... Uh, Daniel has suggested to Asia. Now, there's no question what Danny is saying is true. No doubting Asia's rising significance in the world economy 
and may it long continue. Some have even talked of the 21st century being or becoming Asian. Well, all I can say is a few words of warning, um, or at least a few words of qualification to that. I, I suppose the first question I ask is less an economic one than a political one. First, to what extent does the word or the region called Asia constitute an entity with an identity of its own? A collective purpose, even. Here the news, I think, on the political front looks a lot less positive than it does on the economic, as Danny has argued. Two of the really big Asian countries, India and China, also happen to be strategic rivals. Another two key players, China and Japan, appear to detest each other, <laughs> even though they are important economic partners. And finally, China's rise, rightly or wrongly, seems to be stirring up great fear in the region. So much so that everybody else looks very keen indeed on the USA remaining in Asia forever. One might also add, parenthetically, that Japan, number three economy in the world, with a very close relationship with the United States, which isn't going to go away, even Japan appears to deny that it is even an authentically Asian country. Well, not so much for a new century in the making there. Which, of course, brings us to the biggest enchilada of all, China. Here, surely, there is, as Danny says, strong, even overwhelming evidence of an economic power shift away from the West and the United States. And certainly many writers seem to think so, including Martin Jakes, whose 2008 volume, When China Rules the World, became a runaway bestseller, even in China, <laughs> interestingly. <laughs> I wonder why. Uh, more recently, the World Bank, and here, Danny, I've been looking through that damn World Bank statistics of yours, it's added its voice to the rising China chorus. Indeed, this year, in fact, I think over a couple of months ago, a few weeks ago, it even suggested that China would soon overtake the USA economically. But note, not in 2020, not in 2030, but sometime next week, in 2014. Now, how to respond? Now, not by denying significance of China's economic transformation, but rather to pose some questions, that's all. That's what I'm here to do. A mere innocent. Well, Danny's figures. Now, I don't dispute these figures, Danny, but I've been stuck in these things for five days. I've been looking at nominal, I've been looking at PPP, my eyes have got twisted, my brain has fried. I won't say that there are statistics, statistics and damn lies. I'm not going to say that. But there are different ways of reading these statistics. Indeed, somebody even argued that some of these statistics are a bit dodgy. There is a possibility. You talked about the Soviet Union. I never believed a word the Soviet Union said about itself, and I turned out to be right, and the Soviet Union collapsed. <laughs> now, I'm not equating the USSR with China. I think that, that is wrong. That is wrong. But there are lessons to be learned about the use and misuse of statistics, and there's been quite a lot of criticism of the way these statistics are compiled. But even if we use another way of measuring GDP you still end up with China at about 10 to 11 trillion and the United States still at 17. So it's still way ahead. Right, just to start off. The other thing, of course, as indeed uh, President uh, Xi Jinping said in, in Brussels on the 2nd of April 2014, and he was very open about this. He said, don't exaggerate us. Don't overestimate what we've achieved. We've achieved a great deal, but by God, we've got a long way to go. He didn't use God, of course. He tried to use statistics. LAUGHTER 
But what did he say? He said, look at the living standards if you're going to measure progress. Look at per capita average income. Here, he said, the picture looks very different to that which the kind of China rises, if I can call them, you know, quite often the exaggerators. In fact, I quite often find a much better debate about this going on inside China than outside in the West. And what did you say uh, on the 2nd of April in Brussels? Basically, while China has done much to alleviate poverty at home, massive, more contribution than all the aid the West has ever done, more than 200 million Chinese, according to the president, about one-sixth of the population, were still living under the poverty line as set by the World Bank. There's a long way to go. There's a hell of a long way to go. And I think much of that often gets missed in some of the literature on China's rising. China, in that sense, is 80th in the world in terms of per capita GDP. And that takes it a long way away from that World Bank statement China's now becoming the biggest and best economy, or the biggest economy in the world. I could look at competitiveness. Now, I'm not an economist, Danny. I'm a, I'm a kind of naive, nice English IR scholar who really doesn't understand really very much economics, but here I go. Competitiveness is measured by Davos. Now, you can tell me more about competitiveness, than, and you've probably forgotten more about competitiveness than I would ever know. But simply looking through, say, the Davos statistics on competitiveness, what do you end up with? You end up with a slightly different picture. A slightly different picture. And maybe you can help me get, get through this confusion. Nine of the most com ten competitive countries in the world are Western. 18 out of 25 were, are Western. China comes in where? On competitiveness. 29th. A long way back from the USA, which comes in now today at fifth. It is true. The US is slipping down that competitive scale. It was once one. Now it's five. But where's China? Still 29th. It seems to like the number. Where's India? Another rising power. 49th. Where's Brazil? 56th. That's not so good. It's Football team did better. <laughs> Russia. Russia was 63rd. Where is it now on this competitive scale? 64th. Not much movement there. If that's a power shift, then boy, we've got problems. I'm then going to be really sneaky, Danny. As you know, I always am in these debates because I'm really not such a nice guy after all, <laughs> as you're beginning to discover. And you know it. I've been looking at Nobel Prizes recently, largely because I'd like one. <laughs> Mainly because I'll never get one, but also because I'm jealous of Professor Pissaridis here, who recently did get one. Now, I kind of think that Nobel Prizes measure something. We celebrate them. I mean, Chris Pissaridis now is kind of carried around the LSE, you know, in a chair. We all celebrate him. You get a Nobel, boy, oh boy. We even boast about the number of Nobel Prizes we got here at the LSE, beginning with George Bernard Shaw, who knew nothing about economics, by the way. <laughs> Most of them have gone to economists. Now, I kind of looked at this. It seems to me that Nobel Prizes are a measure of something. High-quality, cutting-edge research over a period of time which has paradigm-shifting implications. What does one find simply comparing China with Western countries, largely with the United States? Again, what one finds is that since 2000, China has won four Nobel Prizes. Very good. Two of these, however, were in literature. <laughs> Nothing wrong with literature. But one of the prizes here went to a writer who had lived in France since the late 1980s. Another prize was awarded in physics, but it went to a man called Sir Charles Qn Cao, 
who had spent all or most of his professional life outside the People's Republic of China, and by the way, as a British-American citizen. And another prize, and I dare not mention this here because the Chinese embassy will come down on me like a ton of bricks. The other prize, of course, was for peace. But this was awarded to someone in prison for his human rights activities. Lu <laughs> Xiaobo. Now, over the same period of time, what has declining America won? Well, it hasn't done too bad. It's won 24 times more Nobel Prizes than China. Actually, very ironically, three of them in peace. One awarded to a president who had only just been recently elected. One awarded to the most boring American politician in the world, Al Gore. And one, and one given to an ex-president called Jimmy Carter. Significantly none in literature. This is rather strange, I think. Um, and all the rest were in the hard areas. Physics, chemistry, medicine, economics. 92. 92. Now, many of those were awarded to people working in America, who had gone to America. But again, that tells you something about the strengths of America. That does tell you a lot about the strengths of America. You might even note that Britain, you know, dear old declining Britain, recently characterised as a third world country, has won 17 prizes. Quite, quite good. France has won nine, Germany has won eight, and Japan has won 11. Now, again, you may say, well, what's that got to do with anything? I think it's got a lot to do with quite a lot. It tells me quite a lot. What about top research globally? Again, Danny alluded to this because he knew I was going to raise it, and I will raise it very, very quickly. It's much the same story, continued Western primacy. Citation by institution of the top 20 cited institutions in the world. This is in science and economics. 14 of the 20 are American. Three are British, one each Canada, Germany and Japan, none in the People's Republic of China. World rankings of universities, even using the Shanghai ranking, which is approved by the Chinese government, eight out of ten of the top universities in the world are American, 60 out of 100 are USA. You know, so it goes on. This again must tell me something. This again must tell me something. Now, of course, none of this is meant to denigrate China or Asia or any of China or Asia's achievements. I'm merely pointing to something which is self-evident to those who wish to understand the world, namely that China has a very long way to go before it can even begin to think of catching up and overtaking the West. It is equally clear, to me at least, and this is the other side of the coin, and I love Danny's map because it's so funny but so wrong, it is equally clear to me that for all the talk of the US being on the way down, it retains some formidable advantages, some of which I've not even mentioned so far, but I will. We should at least mention some. The, the ongoing primacy of the US dollar, the universal currency of choice, which gives the US to, quote, exorbitant privilege in relation to everybody else. The fact that the US can call upon a vast number of serious allies on all those continents not covered by ice. China, by the way, has only one real ally, North Korea. I'll leave the rest to you. <laughs> Meantime, the US military may not be invincible, but it is formidable. And it's certainly much bigger than China's. America also has, and this is the truth, I think, an extraordinary capacity to attract the talented and the hardworking from other countries around the world. Danny, I think you did your PhD in the United States. <laughs> I had to get that one in. Finally, let's be blunt. Finally, the U.S. possesses a highly stable political system built on a set of ideas to which most Americans appear to subscribe. America may be going through some tough times right now. I would not doubt it. But I think it would be a foolish policymaker anywhere, and particularly in Beijing, who saw this as a betokening some basic shift in power. 
Sadly, a few in Beijing may have done that, and that may have got us into the difficulties we're in today. Now, of course, and I'll conclude very quickly, my critic or critics might argue that I'm only talking of the right now, 2014. What are the trend, the trend lines that Danny is very good at uh, projecting? Where will the world be in 20 or 30 years' time if the trends continue along the same line as they've done over the past 25 years? Fair point. It's a good question. Won't we by then be seeing a power shift either to the BRICS or to Asia or specifically to, to China? It's possible. You know, nothing is impossible. But if the last 25 years have taught us anything, it is not to bet on things moving in a perfectly straight line, upwards or even downwards. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had a 2008 crisis in the West. Stuff happens. Events happen. Things we least expect happen. As even the biggest power shifters have to concede, the BRICS and the emerging countries more generally are not yet the finished item. Each in a different way faces some very real tough times ahead, some very tough policy choices ahead. Let me conclude. Let me be clear. I do not dispute economic facts, certainly not with Danny Quar sitting over here. Uh, nor do I deny the importance of what has been happening in the world and to the international economy over the past 20 years, quickly. Indeed, I welcome such changes. I'm not a kind of a Western imperialist US supremacist who kind of wants the West to run the world forever. I'm not. I welcome such changes. They've made the lives of ordinary people much better. The emerging economies have added to the world's wealth. And China alone, together with Asia, has done, as Danny has rightly pointed out, an enormous amount to keep the world economy on the road especially important since 2008. But I do worry, I do worry a bit, and not about Danny so much as about others who kind of make a much more exaggerated set of claims. I do worry that a new myth has taken hold in, in the process, a myth that has vastly overstated the degree of changes, some of which I've tried to contest, while ignoring how much power, in the wider sense, the West still retains. Why is this important? As Danny asked that question, why, what does this mean, therefore? Two reasons. One, because it's important to get your facts right rather than wrong. And Danny and I, I don't think, dispute the facts. Maybe interpretations differ. And two, because I think bad analysis based on poor evidence, again coming back to Danny, invariably leads to miscalculation and bad policies. Bad facts matter. This was true in the past. We also see it today. First, we can see it in this country, actually in Britain, where the Eurosceptics in the Tory party deliberately exploit the idea of a power shift to the east as a way of playing down Europe's central importance to the continued prosperity of the British economy. We also see it in Europe itself, where talk of a rising Asia is being used to undercut Europe's many important social achievements. We can't afford welfare in the Asian century. I've heard that said on many occasions. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, Danny, it is having an impact in the United States, where fears that America is fast losing out to China in particular is fueling an increasingly hysterical debate about containing China rather than working with it as a partner. As I have said, bad ideas lead to bad outcomes. And one of those bad ideas, as I've tried to show here tonight, is that the world is in the midst of an irreversible power shift that can only have dire consequences for the West in general and the United States in particular. The sooner we dispense with it, 
the better it will be for everybody. Thank you. Okay. Well, I didn't have my clapometer here tonight, but uh, I think that was that was a, re- a, a draw. Okay, we got we got some time. We're going for a, a drink and a reception upstairs fairly soon. But I think Danny and I would like to take uh, some questions. We posed a few problems, a few questions, and I'm sure I hope there's going to be something coming back from you guys. Okay, there's somebody with a hand in a vertical pose. Uh, better take the mic. Shout quickly, make it quick. Thank Thanks, you. great. Yes, um, so in the past we thought that uh, democracy is necessary in order to reach a certain level of prosperity, and China is now challenging that. And the Chinese political system is stable right now, I mean, more or less, and that is, I guess, because uh, the Chinese government is improving the lives of people and people have a perspective. But is that still going to be possible when, when that's not the case anymore? Dan, do you want to go? Is democracy um, stable in China? Is it? Uh... Yeah. Um, should we take a few questions? Yeah. Okay. Then, yeah. One on democracy. Yeah. Yeah. A gentleman back. Yeah. Please. Um, I have another question. My question is: Is there a real strategic rise of Iran, Islamic Republic of Iran, as a power which will take a strong role or a percentage of leadership uh, role in the Middle East or even worldwide, politically, economically, culturally? <clears throat> as a modern model as it's trying to present itself or uh, as it's building itself independently from the world economic uh, regime. Thank you. Okay, great. Okay, where else are we going? Okay, there's somebody up the back, lady up the back there, yeah, please. Wait, wait for the mic, please, please, if you don't mind. Thanks. This Sorry. question might be too much of the road, but uh, you were telling that uh, India and uh, China will be uh, important yeah. markets. Bit too, um, uh, 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 Sorry, I can't hear you. To import uh, in India, for example, raw material, yeah. you need to pay a lot of duties, and then to sell it again, you have high transportation costs. So I don't understand that those two big countries, that they don't focus more to keep these kind of costs lower. Okay, fine. Any more okay. for any more? Okay. Do you want to have a go first? Yeah, I'll, I'll, ha- I'll have a go. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, the question that came at the end had to do with whether these large countries might not be better served looking out for their own domestic development on infrastructure, for instance, rather than looking afield in the world more generally, taking on the reins of leadership, trying to run the world, be global hegemon. Mm. Since these, many of these countries are poor, or in the case of India and China, very large, wouldn't it serve them better to just focus on their domestic development even more? Um, there's a yes and no answer to that. And partly it's that many countries at that stage of development have found it useful to be able to harness the power of a global marketplace. It gives them access to 7 billion customers who typically will have incomes and spending power larger than their own. So paying attention to what happens in international trade and international relations matters hugely. Keeping open the lines of communication, being friends to the rest of the world. At the same time that we say this, however, I think policymakers in China and India and elsewhere 
Brazil and elsewhere, do recognize that there's, a lot of, there's lots of infrastructure that they need to be concerned with. There is a, a story that comes out of McKinsey and elsewhere that says that if you go to China and you go to, say, the western part of China, Sichuan or elsewhere, mm-hmm. well, if you were to manufacture a T-shirt or a pair of blue jeans in the western part of China, it would cost you more to transport that item mm-hmm. to the port of Shanghai than it currently does to transfer that same item from Nigeria to Shanghai. There's lots of infrastructure within these countries that need to be built, and that will be an important part of the development profile going forward. So I would tend to agree with you that these countries do have to pay attention to what's going on within their countries. There's a question about Iran, or more generally, I want to take this as a question about alternative models that countries throughout the world might be looking on as a way to think about how they would undertake development in their own society. I think I agree with Mick here completely that we need to be careful as we discuss an Asian century or any other kind of century. We don't become triumphalist in the way we approach these questions. We should not be thinking, oh, if we keep the Asian century away, yay, we get to be number one again in the West. It is not that. It is a question of everybody pulling together. And different models, whether an Iranian development model or a Chinese development model, will be appropriate at different times for countries in different stages. This gets me to the first question, the question of democracy. I think just as we have a tendency to think about world leadership as being really something that gives us bragging rights, we're number one, we're the world's leader. It's like you know, winning the NBA basketball championships. World leadership, running the world, global governance, should not be viewed in those terms. It should be viewed as there being multiple ways to do things. There are alternative pathways by which we can achieve prosperity. What we sometimes characterize as the treadmill that the Chinese system is on. The Chinese government has to continue to deliver goodies to its people. Otherwise, they will, uh, what, vote the government out of power? No. But actually, that's the same logic that we use for governments everywhere in the world, democratic or otherwise. They have to continue to serve their people. And what the Chinese system has done is come up with an alternative way by which you elevate leaders, foresighted leaders, who are able to continue to serve the people, and they will continue that for as long as they can. Sometimes this question about democracy weaves over into other ways, other things we think about political systems. We say, well, any system that's not democratic doesn't have legitimacy. Any system that's not democratic doesn't have flexibility. Well, actually, legitimacy comes from serving the needs of people. And you can do that whether you're in a democracy or an autocracy. Flexibility, China's so-called autocratic system, has been through what? A cultural revolution, massive collectivization, you know, pushing people out to the agricultural, pushing people out through agricultural reforms, opening up the country to manufacturing interests from elsewhere in the world, allowing business people to become members of the Communist Party, moving away from a system of entrenched leadership to strict term limits 
on the top leadership, China's political system, non-democratic that it is, has seen as much change, if not more, than any other system in the world. And what we need to do as scholars, as students of social science, is to be sensitive to these actual changes, to see through the labels that the rest of the world applies to political systems. Yeah, I'll just be quick, because I want other people to come in, other voices to be, to be uh, brought in here. <clears throat> On the democracy question, I mean, look, uh, when did Britain become a democracy? Well, that's a good question. Uh, 1948, actually. Uh, well, that sounds weird. Hold on, I thought Britain was a democracy in the 19th century. No, it wasn't. Uh, it only extended the vote after the First World War in 1918. It only extended the vote to women on a fort without property in 1928. So Britain was a liberal economy before it was a democracy. Uh, when did the United States become a democracy? Well, 1965, Civil Rights Act. So, you know, we've got to be a bit careful. You know, the long evolution towards what we now call democracy has taken a hell of a long time. It takes a hell of a long time, and I think, therefore, we've got to take that very, very long view. It's interesting, by the way, Danny, I think that uh, neither the US nor the EU promote democracy in relationship to China. They may promote good governance, they may promote human rights, they may kind of talk the talk, but on those kinds of issues, and they're really, they're really quite well aware of this. Uh, I, I kind of t take your point. I mean, the, the anti-corruption campaign, which I've been following quite closely in China, I mean, you know, it, it will mean I won't get a decent meal when I go to China next week because nobody will ever be able to take me out to a decent restaurant on the fear of, you know, there may be an anti-corruption campaign in, in, in the midst. But nonetheless, if we had the kind of anti-corruption campaigns in China, which we don't have in this country or some other, you know, it'd be quite interesting. And I agree with that. The, the party, I mean, although I think in the end, democracy will be the best thing for China at some point, at some point, at some point down the line. I'm absolutely certain of that. You know, opening up debate for plural, plural voices, all of that, it seems to me, is, I would actually say it's inevitable at some point down the line. But in the meanwhile, we've got to kind of be where we are today. And by the way, as we found out in Iraq, and as we're finding out in Afghanistan today, you know, democracy is no simple answer to the problems facing any complex society. That's not an apology for the Communist Party, 84 million of them all dears, but I mean, it, is, it does raise that very big question. On Iran, well, look, I mean, I'll only just say, I think the United States and the West has made so many mistakes in Iran, they're bound to make another one in the near future. Uh, we have, for the first instance, we have, for, for the first time in years, a chance of a deal. We have a first, first chance for years on this. Uh, with, the, with the new leadership in Iran. Now, I'm not sure Iran is a model. <clears throat> I, I know not enough about Iran to make that sort of claim. But I can, I can see a situation where Iran, the inheritor of, a, of, of an extraordinary civilization, uh, a proud people, uh, and an important country, over 70 million people, and an important oil supply, and an important pivot player in, in the Middle East and indeed in the world, uh, it either becomes part of a larger solution to the Middle East and a larger solution to world problems, or it remains an outsider. And the sooner we can draw it in to this, then I think Iran's influence will bound to grow. It is bound to grow. I was looking, by the way, at a very interesting story this morning about, I know this sounds a bit off the wall, but tourism in, uh, in Turkey. Hmm. It's very interesting. I mean, you know, most people in this country would not have a clue the hundreds of thousands of tourists coming from Iran going to Turkey. It's an opening up process. It's an opening up process. Uh, and I think the, the misunderstandings, well, may I dare say, is in the United States more than anywhere else 
about Iran are so huge. We've got a long way to go on that one, but I certainly hope we get there. Whether it becomes a model or not, I don't know. The final point, quickly, on India. There's a lot so much to be said on that. Okay, should I think if your question was let it focus on itself, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, any government that doesn't focus on itself you know, will never get elected. That's presumably why Mr Modi just got a landslide against against the Congress party. Um, but India lives in a, uh, it lives in a difficult neighborhood, and uh, a very difficult neighborhood, as I'm sure you're well aware, and it can't focus on itself alone. Um, indeed, many of the economic changes which have taken place in India over the last 20 years, since the early 1990s, have occurred in part, in part because of changes that took place elsewhere in the world, namely the collapse of the socialist alternatives in East Central Europe. You, you never live in one country alone. You know, we are all connected in some way or, or another. Therefore, I, I, I kind of take the point you're trying to get at, but I, I want to kind of think, if India, India is much better than just that, I think. It's, it is a, a much larger player and should be one, and should be one, and can make a major positive contribution as well. Okay, we take two or three others, and then we'll, the gentleman here, uh, I, I say the man in stripes, uh, uh, or somebody here, oh, sorry, I'm trying to pick up, yeah. So you said that China is way behind U.S. and so is India. But uh, and unlike U.S. and Canada, which have such a friendly relation, I agree China and India doesn't have such a friendly relation. But in coming years, after two, three decades, say by 2050, as you know, Indian politics have changed utterly. If China and India start working together, do you think that they can... India and China. Yeah. Yeah. If they start working together, can they be the next superpower? Okay. Okay. Right, okay. United India and China. Yes. Like that. <laughs> yes. It's good, I know, yeah. Let's, let's hope so. There was another question. There was a, a, a lady there, was this? Somebody, I don't want to bring, I don't want to be accused of gender imbalance here, you know. Yeah, there's a yeah, person along here, yeah. I'll pass it back, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, go, 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 be quick, yeah. All right, so... One last thing that I was wondering about is that we talked about the shift in power, but do you still believe that, for example, the United Nations, do they still possess the credibility to respect the shift in power? And, or, do we, or will we change to a system, for example, with the ad hoc multilateralism? Yeah. Okay, take that one. If you could pass it back, because somebody had their hand up behind you. Yeah, yeah, there. We'll take these three, I think. Sorry, I know there's lots of other. We will meet you upstairs, by the way, so we can continue the conversation upstairs. Yeah, please. Um, regarding specifically the issue we're talking about with Nobel Prizes and universities. Nobel Prizes, yeah. Um, don't you think that both Nobel Prizes and universities are more indicators of um, past success because they take, uh, specifically universities, would take a long time to build up the prestige that they have so it isn't so much an indicator of future success as past success. Okay. And Nobel Prizes as well tend to be more about, um, or not generally, yeah. but like yeah. some of them are less practical yeah. things. Um, so. You go first. Yeah, okay. I'll pick up on some of those very, very quickly. Uh, on Nobel Prizes and universities, um, look, it, it may be a measure of what's happened in the past, However, it, it does strike me, and I, it's, it's, it's one of the unavoidable questions you've got to raise, because people talk about a power shift in, in, in ways much more exaggerated than Danny does. I mean, op-ed pieces, you know, the world is shifted, world, everything is changing, everything is moving either to the BRICS or to the rest or to China or to Asia. You know, I mean, it's simply the boring stuff of looking at the stats. And the Nobel Prizes are, like the universities are, a measure of intellectual vibrancy. They're a measure of openness. They're a measure of resources. They're a measure of the way people do research. 
They're a measure of research standards, global standards. They're global standards being set. And by the way, I cited Shanghai, the Shanghai yeah. University, not, not, not the Western ones, just to make, make, the point, make the point stronger than the truth almost, you know, because it comes out of China itself. Well, it may well be, but there's a lot of structural advantage. That's all I'm saying, that the United States and Western universities still have. That's all I'm trying to say. There's a lot of structure. And then you want to ask the question, why? Why is it that when you look at these world rankings, and it's, it's the Shanghai rankings, you know, not one single major Chinese university figures, even though in other rankings, Western rankings, Beida and Tsinghua does figure. Um, you've got to ask yourself the question, why the United States so dominates in the, in the, in the areas of higher education? It's not something that cheers me up. After all, I'm a Brit. Um, you know, you've just got to ask the question. They must be doing something right. And they've been doing it right maybe for a very long time. And it seems to me that advantage is still very great. The other thing, and this is, by, by the way, goes against your argument. The American universities are very good at attracting foreigners to work in them. And that's what gives them such strength. And not just, you know, guys who are born in Alabama, you know, or, you know, I've lived all my life in the USA. These are guys coming from Asia. They're guys coming from Europe. They're guys coming from India. You know, in other words, it has an enormous attractive power. Let somebody else pay for their education. We'll have them. Thank you very much indeed. And many of those Nobel Prizes, by the way, weren't awarded to Native Americans, but people who've gone to the United States to work. So I do think there's a futurology there. I don't think it's just a measure of the power. What the others have to do is to, is to raise their standards. So the more Europeans and more Americans want to go and study in universities elsewhere and not just being a one-way traffic, which it is currently at, at the moment. On the UN, very, very quickly on a shift in power. Look, my old dear friend Paul Kennedy, whom I mentioned rather irreverently, but he's a great man, uh, dear old Paul you know, did a wonderful book on the UN. And he came out and he said, do you know, we should reform the UN. Do you know, we're never going to do it. I said, why is that? He said, well, look at the, look at the P5, because that's what you're largely referring to, the big five. You know, the five who, uh, you know, who are the P5. Okay. The Americans will never give up, that's for sure. The Brits won't give up. The French won't give up, that's for sure. Russia's not going to give up. China ain't nowhere ever going to give up. It's seat. Okay, let's add a couple. I know. How about Japan? China says, hmm, not sure. Um, somebody says India. Hmm, Pakistan has a problem. Somebody says Brazil. Well, Argentina kind of thinks that's not a very, very good idea. Um, <laughs> they've been talking about the reform of the Security Council forever and ever and ever, and it ain't got nowhere. And I don't think it's just because the West hangs on. Mm. I think it's because it's so difficult to get the political balance in the P5 right to reform it. It's extraordinarily difficult. I'm not, I'm not saying it should go on like this forever. Perhaps it should reflect more of some of the shifts. You know, maybe a Brazil should come in, and India should come in, but the politics of getting either of those in has proven very, very difficult, as Paul found out. Uh, I love your argument about an India-China uh, uh, deal. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. Last time I was in China, they weren't talking about this very much. And, and, and most of my Indian friends still regards, rightly or wrongly, China as its main strategic rival. Now, until either can get off this security dilemma, I'm afraid we're not going to see this partnership, which clearly would change the world and definitely would change Asia. Yeah. Danny. Okay, thanks. I, my views are a little bit different from Professor Cox's That's on good. this. On the Nobel Prize issue, there actually has been an instance when there was a dramatic change in the geographical distribution of Nobel Prizes mm -hmm. awarded. Uh, 
that was right after the Second World War, when a massive influx of European intellectuals established the United States as the place to be winning Nobel Prizes for decades after. So on that front, what matters? What matters is an openness in your society to taking in people from elsewhere in the world. Take the best people in who are coming to you for whatever reason and that need your help and have things to contribute back to you. And it's that kind of an open system, an open society that any country can, I think, run if it has the political will and that will set it up well for winning the next raft of Nobel Prizes. Unfortunately, we don't have very many other countries in the world that do that at mm. this point. Mm. I mean, Japan, China are not yet countries where that see the same openness that the United States showed at the end of the Second World War. But if they do, then all bets are off. Mm. And Mick and I will have to give a different kind of talk <laughs> about Nobel Prizes. Absolutely right. Soon. Absolutely right. On the, the question about the United States, I'm, about the UN, I'm going to boil it down to something very simple. Does the UN continue to have credibility? Look, I've got great friends at the United Nations. They're wonderful, dedicated people who want to do good things for the world. I don't think the United Nations has ever had credibility. <laughs> if you reflect back on the achievements towards, an, towards a global outcome that's actually benefited the world, for all the good things that... <laughs> We wanted the United Nations to be able to achieve. It has failed rather spectacularly. Now, admittedly, part of that is because it's been undermined by the United States. But be that as it may, it's not had the great credibility that it should have. Finally, on the question about superpowers, I'd prefer to take it a step back. Do we want another superpower? Think about what superpowers do. At the best, you know, in their best form, in their most enlightened form, they're an unelected, all-powerful leadership that's set on accumulating ever greater resources and power for themselves. They're not democratically elected. They are not accountable. They serve no constituency. They're about the most undemocratic, detestable system you can think about. And yet, we, global society, goes around saying, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had this superpower or that superpower? Because then they're our superpower. Well, actually, newsflash, they're not going to be our superpower. They're going to be a power unto themselves, and it's not generally a good thing to happen in a world where we want to be moving towards... Democracy is a loaded word. I prefer to think about systems where no government should feel secure. Every leader should constantly feel insecure that they are there on the basis of shifting sands where the people will kick them out if they do not continue to serve the wishes of the people. That is a system that applies whether we label them democracy or autocracy. And we should be careful the things that we wish for at the global level. So do I think even if China and India did get together and become a global superpower... I'm not sure I'd be there on the sidelines cheering them on, despite my wanting Asia to succeed. And to conclude, if I may, is Asia a coherent block? Look, you and I and all of us know who Asia's richest people are, what the rich families are, the great things that they've done, that they've, Asia has reduced poverty by hundreds of millions of people in the last 25 years. Today... Asia still has 780 million people practicing open defecation. 
a billion people do not have access to toilets. All of Europe and all of the United States are shitting out there in open fields. That's what Asia still is today. I'm not suggesting that even from my numbers or anybody's numbers, Asia or anybody else at this point is in a place where it should be leader. But what we should be striving for is for a global development that respects people wherever they are and that leadership should not exclude them. Danny, on that fine note, we shall end. We have a slight disagreement, I think, on the UN, but that's a, that, that, that'll take us for another two or three hours. Um, I hope that you've all enjoyed some of the thoughts, ideas, provocations, differences you've seen uh, revealed here this evening. Uh, Danny and I have been debating this. I think we're more or less saying the same thing now as I was saying five years ago, and you're saying more or less the same thing you were five years ago. So you're right, and I'm right. So, or alternatively, we're both wrong, or you're right, and I'm wrong, and that's impossible. Uh, Again, thanks for coming along tonight, guys. I hope you've enjoyed it. We're upstairs.